Welcome to Economics and Beyond. I'm Rob Johnson, president of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. Say you can kill my body. But you know you can't mess with my mind. So don't you can't kill my mind. You know we'll go away. We're gonna go away. Come back, come back, come back, come back. My second time. I'm here today with a longtime friend and INET scholar, Bill Lozanik, who's a professor of emeritus at University of Mass at Lowell, and has been, how would I say, very involved in many, many things, stock buybacks and the nature of pharmaceutical intellectual property rights and all kinds of issues. Uh, he leads a team that INET has always been very, uh, what you might call, inspired by. And he's the president of what's called the Academic Industry Research Network. And I think that Bill, along with his co-authors, Philip Moss, and Joshua Weitz, who is a PhD candidate in political science at Brown University, have written a magnificent paper that's the focus of today's conversation. It's called The Unmaking of the Black Blue Collar Middle Class. It came out in May, available on the INET website. But uh, Bill, it how would I say, I'm just kind of, first of all, thank you for being with me. And secondly, I'm just kind of stunned, having grown up in Detroit, having worked with you, closely on that 2016 conference we did in Detroit on race and inequality, just to see how you've risen to the challenge. I think this is an extraordinary paper and it, it's a precursor to a book on yeah. these same themes. But tell me, what inspired you? What got you to dig deep in this particular realm of concern? Okay, yeah. Well, um, first of all, as an economist, uh, I really started out you know, as a graduate student in the early 70s, and then once I became a faculty member at uh, I was at Harvard and then Columbia before I went to UMass Lowell, I'd say up to uh, the early 90s, I was really focused a lot on labor. So I wrote a book, uh, came out with Harvard University Press in 1990 called Competitive Advantage on the Shop Floor, which was about uh, the transformation of employment relations. Uh, um, I had originally looked at Britain, then at the United States, and then was looking at what was going on in Japan. Uh, and, and the next year I had a, a book which was more about what this meant for economics, uh, which is probably more widely read, uh, called Business Organization and the Myth of Market Economy, which also started from this comparative perspective of capitalism in Britain, United States, and Japan. And, and, and actually up to that point, uh, I was pretty much focused on kind of looking at nations competing, but recognizing that they competed through business enterprises. So that uh, one of the problems that, that I had with, uh, and still have with economics is, you know, it's states and markets. It's also a problem often with political sciences, uh, sociology, and where's the business enterprise? Uh, but 80% uh, of employment, more than that, is, in the United States is, is, is the business sector, uh, which, by the way, I always tell everybody I work with, I never call it the private sector because most of those companies are not run or owned by people who ever built the companies or run by employees. So I call the business sector the government sector. And 
you know, some of those companies grow to be the size of small countries uh, and they dominate the, the economy. So a statistic I often throw out is the latest data are from 2017, but they don't change that much, although it tends to become more concentrated. There's about uh, 2,100 companies in the United States that account for about um, 35% of business sector employment. They average about their companies with 5,000 or more employees in the United States. They average about 21,000 employees. They have about 40% of the payroll. So they pay somewhat higher than the rest of the, the companies. And they have about 45 or 46% of the revenues. And in my view, that's where the action is. Uh, and that's where the action's been for at least 100 years uh, at, uh, in these major enterprises and how they decide to uh, structure employment, how they decide to pay the employees, how they decide to share up uh, productivity gains has uh, a huge implication for the way the rest of society operates. Uh, and so uh, one of the things that I became uh, very interested in, well, at the beginning of my career, uh, looking for an alternative theory, uh, I started looking at uh, Marxian, the, not the Marxian theory, but the theories of Marx for the 19th century. And I found that, in fact, where people thought that the workers were just pressed down, turned to appendage a machine, a, you know, just uh, a commodity, that actually didn't happen for the central workers, male workers in the British Industrial Revolution. They actually were able to uh, form very unions and, and, and get share in productivity. They were the foundation, ultimately, of the Labour Party. And one of the reasons was not simply union power. Uh, because if it's just union power, the companies wouldn't have been competitive. These people were highly productive, and the companies needed to use them, needed their their skills and effort. And even as they as they mechanized machinery, this didn't get rid of that need. And uh, so there was an important lesson then there, and that is uh, that uh, the working class in the advanced economies actually did have a path to upward mobility if it worked in productive business enterprises. And if those enterprises shared the gains with them. Now, in the, the British case, I was looking at the cotton textile industry where most of the enterprises were pretty small. And so uh, it was the, uh, that's where actually the unions played a role, not just in bargaining, but in actually organizing the industry. So if there was overproduction, they would organize for short time work. If there was a, they were better organized than the employers. And, and, but then we had a transition. And uh, and I was looking at uh, uh, coming into the 1980s and I got into a debate with some uh, kind of what you might call the neoclassical economic historians. Uh, then Donald, now Deirdre McCloskey was one of them uh, and uh, on British decline. Well, we, I started looking, of course, I had, uh, I've been looking at the United States, but I really started looking at how historically the United States has surpassed uh, uh, Britain. And at that point, uh, there were two books that had a big influence on me. One was uh, Alfred Chandler's The Visible Hand, uh, which came out in 1977, uh, won the Pulitzer Prize in history. And I didn't, I, only, I got to know Chandler. Uh, he was at Harvard Business School. I was in the Harvard Economics Department. But I first actually met him in 1980. So it was after he had published that book. And it was because he published that book. I said, you know, I, I knew there was big business here in the United States, but I didn't know where it, it all, where it all came from. You know, no one had really pulled it all together, documented it in that way, or people had, but not in such a kind of a, 
overriding form, and also with this notion of the visible, the visible hand. And actually, one of the interesting things about uh, Chandler's work was he focused, at least at that point, on uh, economies of, of speed, he called it, or getting scale economies. And this had to do with mass production. But he didn't really talk about the mass production workers. I mean, he, he deliberately was, was looking at the organizational structure. And, uh, and I actually developed in the 80s a very good re close relation with him and to the 90s because I was talking about what was happening to the workers in this context. And so I started looking at mass production in the United States. And this really is reflected in a lot of the things I did in the, well, in the 80s, even starting in the late 70s, but certainly in the 1980s, in the book, Competitive Vendors on Shop Floor, are reflected in this recent work that we've done on, on black employment uh, on the INET working papers. Uh, I started looking at how uh, really a middle class came out of the working class in the United States, how post-World War II, particularly, you got a trend toward more income equality uh, because hot companies did not hire and fire people. Uh, you know, uh, and at the union level, um, it was enforced by, you know, uh, uh, first hired, last fired. Uh, but even when you laid off people in, in a downturn, you hired them back in the upturn. And then the unions had enough money to pro provide supplemental unemployment benefits. So you really maintained your incomes. Um, and at the white collar level, uh, you, uh, you know, this is things like C. Wright Mills, white collar, uh, white collar and, uh, and William of White, you know, organization man of books in the 19. 50s about the rise of the white collar worker. These were people the companies employed, they trained, they retained. Uh, and if they had started just laying these people off as they got older, they wouldn't have been able to get any workers and they wouldn't have been able to build those companies. Um, and so uh, you ended up having a system post-World War II, which kind of Chandler was talking about the companies that were involved that were building these capabilities that were allowing people to be productive and allowing them to share in that productivity. And that's really where the action is in terms of getting wages up on a sustainable basis. Uh, because one way of looking at it is when you say people need jobs, they don't need jobs for a year or two. They need jobs for now 30, 40 years that, that have enough productivity that they can you know, make decent wages and be able to save enough for a couple decades of retirement. That, you know, you know, that's what an advanced economy does when it operates properly. And that's for all its problems, you know, imperialism, whatever, racism. And, you know, uh, the United States was building this economy based on uh, integrating people into these companies and creating a middle class. And that, that meant that people, you know, other parts of industry, smaller firms, they had to try to uh, meet those, those wage demands. Um, it also led to certain things uh, that are particularly because of the strength of that system in the United States, where we have problems now. I mean, those companies were the ones that provided pensions and they provided health care. And so the system as a whole didn't have to really worry about pensions and health care at a national level because the companies providing them. And here is where it really I mean, comes uh, what I did earlier, which was not really uh, I was interested in the race dimension of it, but 
had not been able to dig into it deeply enough to really understand it. This is where doing this work over the last number of years, and I guess about six years now, uh, we really understood it is that uh, that really was a white uh, structured as a white man's world. Uh, it was not structured in a way that said, oh, we want to employ everybody in this system. And so there was a, a highly divided system on the basis of race that, that exists, as we all know. And although it started to break down in various ways uh, uh, post-World War II, it was only in the 60s and 70s that there was some, some uh, dramatic change. And the timing is important because when the change occurred, uh, uh, Blacks were able to uh, move into a lot of these good jobs, particularly at the blue collar level, that required high school education at most, uh, that, that whites had been in, that where there's still a strong demand, uh, there was upward mobility from blue collar to white collar intergenerationally among whites, and there was very low level of, of employment. There was still, although you had the opening up of some employment by the 1965 Immigration Act, it was still highly restrictive and um, it, it, particularly in the, in the 60s was one of the, I think, the lowest level of, of, of immigration. Uh, I think is the lowest level of immigration in, in the United States, I meant to say. Uh, and so, so there, the field was open for, you might say, the indigenous population, Blacks, to, to move up. Hispanics were just starting to move in the economy, mainly things like, you know, coming into the 60s Bracero program in agriculture, but not the, the, and a lot of uh, undocumented immigrants, et cetera, but not the, the, the uh, moving so much into these kind of jobs. Now, the other, the other I mentioned there are two books that influenced me, and, and there, uh, the other was a book by economist Edith Penrose on the theory of the growth of the firm, which came out in 1959, is really theoretically parallel to Chandler's history. <laughs> and um, came out around the same time as his first book, Strategy and Structure in 62. And that really said the gr firm grows because it invests in capabilities and it treats these capabilities at any point in time as unused labor services. So it, uh, when you have these capabilities, you don't just throw them away. And I saw that in mass production that extended to the blue collar level. Now, to make sure that didn't happen, the unions got seniority uh, as a fundamental principle of employment in, in virtually every you know, wage bargain and every uh, contract that existed in the United States. Uh, but basically, people, once they had a job with a, with a company, uh, it was very hard to lose that job. Now, a lot of economists might say, well, then they're not going to be productive. But that's not the case. <laughs> Uh, there are always might have been some people might, might be productive. You might have some people that need a lot of supervision, etc. Uh, but basically, uh, there was a lot of incentive to work hard, to get overtime pay, to uh, have you know, to basically uh, there's a set of norms really that that set in uh, that that got high, relatively high levels of productivity. And and people started seeing this show up in their pay packages, the stability of their pay packages, health benefits. They could afford to buy cars. They could afford to move to the suburbs. And education was virtually uh, free. 
in the public higher education pu public system, the land grant college system throughout the United States. And so, so there was a sense of, yeah, you're going to work, work hard, but there, there was something coming out of this, uh, both for yourself and for your children. And that's what blacks were able to move into uh, in the uh, 1960s and 1970s. And they're the first is actually basically, uh, but except for the conclusion, uh, there is actually now, this would be the fourth working paper on this project that we have with INET. And there's one more that's already virtually done. Hopefully we'll get it done, finish it in the next uh, month or so, but it's basically written on the barriers to uh, blacks moving into STEM occupations, moving into the, the white, uh, the uh, the white collar work, um, but uh, the, the the critical uh, thing that that we started seeing was that when this change started occurring in the 1960s, well, first of all, and this uh, virtually everybody who writes on this agrees with this that there was a unusual demand for blue collar workers. Uh, there was low levels of immigration, and there was a civil rights movement, and they came together. Uh, and uh, so, even when, when, the, and, and in some ways, I would say the civil rights movement uh, could take could take place uh, because uh, you know corporate America needed black workers. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, and of course, Martin Luther King, you know, March on, on Washington was for freedom and jobs. And so one of the, okay, when we started doing this, this look at this project, first of all, uh, the first paper we put out, uh, which is actually at the conference, not uh, in, uh, in 2016, and we did a hell of a lot of research since then. So we were just really getting our perspective at that time and figuring out where to get the data from and really digging in. But it was called the Equal Employment Opportunity Omission. And uh, the omission uh, was uh, that it was assumed when the Equal Opportunity Commission was set up after you know coming out of the Civil Rights Act, uh, that uh, when a company employed somebody, a major company, they would have long-term employment. They would have stability of employment. Uh, um, either at the blue collar or white collar level, and uh, and insofar as you had this upward mobility, which you did, a significant scale of uh, a portion, not all, but a portion of 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 uh, the black uh, uh, young black population uh, into these good blue collar jobs, it was because this is a system that was in place uh, at the time in in the sixties. Uh, that when you got the job, you would uh, get seniority. You would, if you, as you stayed there, the job would become more secure. Uh, if you got a white collar job, you would be trained. You'd be moved to some new opportunities, etc. And uh, and there were lots of opportunities because these companies were going to move up the ladder. Um, now, uh, one of the uh, um, I'd say a source that we found. Uh, when uh, as and I forget whether we, I think we had already seen this source before that conference in Detroit in 2016, and it it, it uh, um, yeah we did had and it, this really influenced us was uh, the uh, I believe it was the 
uh, Ford Foundation, maybe it was Rockefeller, I forget. Uh, they had funded a project at Wharton uh, that uh, led to 31 volumes being produced in uh, the late, late 60s and early 70s, led by a guy, a labor uh, economist, I believe he was a sociologist named Herbert Northrop. Uh, and it was called the, the Racial Policies of American Industry. And I have some of these books here uh, on the shelves that I got off of Amazon. So you have them on the auto industry, electrical manufacturing, the steel industry, et cetera. You go through these books, one book after the other, the way in which they saw uh, equal employment opportunity being implemented was by people getting a job and moving up the hierarchy within a company. So, and the critical thing was that blacks, insofar as they were employed by companies coming into the uh, 60s, uh, they would tend to be employed in uh, labor jobs, unskilled, often denied uh, seniority by the unions. Um, and uh, that is where uh, the real action was in terms of people moving up. In, in, in these organizations. And they also focus uh, mostly at the blue collar level because that's where you could find lots of uh, uh, people who uh, you know, could do the job and able and willing to do the job. And as I said, many whites were moving out of these jobs at that time or their children were not going in this job. The demand was still there. Um, and so the omission was that they should have said, this will only work if this system of employment is kept in place. And that's what changed. And of course that relates to a lot of the other work that I do on financialization, corporate financialization, because the fact that companies in the 1980s just started pumping out all this money, not just in dividends, but buybacks to shareholders, the shareholder value ideology became dominant, which I started critiquing around the mid 1980s when I was at Harvard Business School, they hired this guy, Michael Jensen there. Uh, you know, th that was what it was destroying. That notion of that people had, once you work for a company, uh, you had certain rights to be there. And the rights were not an entitlement. They were based on that company remaining competitive in its industries and sharing the gains with its employees. And uh, I'll give you an example. We do a lot of, uh, going and the research we do going back and forth between uh, we use a lot of company reports and we look back at uh, for various things that company reports from the 50s and 60s. And just as one example, I, I came across one. It was a graph that I just sent out to my colleagues. It was from I think, a General Motors annual report around 1967. And it was showing the progress that General Motors had made uh, in, uh, no, I think it was actually 77. So it was from 64 to, this is two to 77, the progress it had made in terms of how it had shared its revenues. Uh, and it was really bragging at how much it had shared with its workers. Uh, you know, so it had the dividends there. It had, you know, this was reinvested plant and equipment, but, and th that was the norm. Okay, and uh, blacks started to take advantage of that. And as we did this research, there were many reasons why that norm disappeared. Uh, but uh, doing this research, it started becoming pretty apparent that if this had still been just white workers in these uh, positions, 
there might have still been there's forces of needing to compete with Japan and changing the way uh, you structure employment relations, which had nothing to do in this case with black, white, you know, who was working on those jobs. Uh, there was the uh, the computer revolution that was taking place and a whole new demand for work. There was globalization that was taking place, uh, a new competition. With all these things, I think the U.S. response would have been very different if it had, if that labor force, that middle class, had been just white and and wasn't moving out of those positions. Now, in the end, we know that white for the you know, working class whites have borne the brunt of this as well, downward mobility. So things that uh, Case and Deaton and others have have uh, documented about white males with high school educations uh, in the last number of years uh, uh, having shorter life expectancy and deaths of despair. Uh, that was happening to blacks in the late 1980s because the blacks, when when the plant closings occurred in the 1980s and nobody really did anything to say, well, what are we going to uh, do about this? Uh, how are we going to keep the middle class whole? Uh, blacks were hit first, and but they weren't the only ones who were hit ultimately. Uh, and and of course, then you can have the politics of sowing divisions between two groups of people who are down even mobile, mobile or who don't have opportunity. And I, I think overwhelmingly, the, the you know the literature on uh, sociological literature on on, on mobility so when there's upward mobility. Uh, there's those differences don't matter as much. There are, there are a lot of books that I remember, uh, like Christopher Lash, The True and Only yeah. Heaven, about how, if you will, to use a religious analogy, if you delay gratification, we will invest in productivity and we will all experience deliverance. As globalization takes place, Delaying gratification ended up creating, which you know better than anybody, stock buybacks and people yeah. being laid off and plants being built in other places. And all of a sudden, I did the sacrifice part, but I didn't get the dividend part. Yeah. Finally, yeah. as you've talked about in this paper and other places, the infrastructure, which you might call the rungs in the ladder, public universities that were cheap. When I was a senior in high school, for the fall of 1975 to 1976, it cost, say, $600 a year to go to the University of Michigan. Yeah. And and so all of the, how do I say, the promise was starting to evacu evaporate. And as you said, blacks were viewed as others. They weren't yeah. creating the feedback politically that as humans that they deserved. But then it deepened. Not only did you not have the steady employment for opportunity, but the places to go for your children to go to a higher level started right. to, to be dismantled. And it started becoming, you know, the, the inflation of tuition. And of course, what you had uh, was the, uh, uh, when I was a grad student in the early 70s at, at Harvard, it was I had some scholarships, but it was still pretty cheap, yeah. uh, you know, uh, yeah. and uh, 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 when I was at MIT, know. it was between four and five thousand dollars a yeah. year, all up, yeah. including where you lived. Yeah. 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 In fact, uh, 
uh, I, uh, I came to Harvard. I, I had a, a master's degree from London School of Economics in, uh, in economics, and I came to Harvard to do a PhD. And the rule at Harvard is that uh, when you, before you do your PhD and you'd get through all your exams, they will give you a master's degree. It doesn't mean anything, but it's a master's degree from Harvard. And then when you do your thesis and everything, you get your PhD. And it turned out that because I uh, uh, had done the master's degree at, at LLC, LLC I, was, I was able to get around having to take a certain number of you know, the, the courses at, at the graduate level. Uh, and I was able to uh, uh, basically finish my coursework in one year at Harvard. Now, Harvard had a rule, a totally bureaucratic rule, that for each degree you had to get, you had to have one year of full, full tuition, not partial tuition. And so I didn't want it, it would cost me an extra $1,800 to get the master's degree. So I said, no, thanks. Uh, but that basically what, what, what ended up happening in the 80s, as we all know, is that the private universities started raising their tuitions um, and the public universities uh, followed suit and uh, the state legislature said, oh, no, people can afford these things. And and what what is uh, basically a, a public service and uh, available to virtually everybody who could could in a sense make the grade now became hugely expensive. And then I could never understand, particularly since I grew up in Canada and actually two of my daughters grew up in Sweden, where they pay you to go to university. These extortionate rates coming from the government on student loans. I mean, I could never. You know, it just doesn't make make sense. So uh, there was clearly you now. Uh, that's jumping ahead a bit to to what's in our next working paper of the uh, the STEM occupations, and I, I'll say a little bit about this because it's 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 instructive about white because that's about white collar work. So the paper we just put out, uh, uh, which I'll come back to, but uh, it was about basically how blacks were moving into those jobs, and we document this in detail. We had kind of laid this out at the 2016 conference in a general way, but then we've documented in detail using as much data as we could get hold of. Uh, there's lots more data if we could free it up from the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission uh, company data, but we use what we, we could get hold of. And it's quite clear that uh, blacks had the opportunity and then the opportunity disappeared and nobody did anything about it. Uh, but then there's a question, okay, what was expanding in the 80s and 90s was, uh, you know, particularly the computer revolution and computer programmers and software engineers, et cetera. So, uh, and, and tax cuts. <laughs> yeah, and tax cuts, yeah. And, and uh, I had done in a book that I, I wrote, uh, published in 2009, it's also a labor book on the, called Sustainable Prosperity in the New Economy, question mark, uh, high tech, you know, it was on business organization, high tech employment in the United States, which I did with the Upjohn Institute. Uh, I looked at the uh, tech companies and, uh, and the reason I actually did that book was I said, okay, uh, are the, the people who are best positioned in the economy uh, to get good jobs, are they getting stable jobs? Are they getting jobs that are paying them well? And of course, I found that some of them were getting, getting paid extremely well because of broad-based stock options, but it was totally, it was almost random. And, but the insecurity was great through globalization. And uh, in that book, uh, there, I have a uh, chapter on the globalization of the high-tech labor force. And that's where I started looking at something we looked at much more in depth 
in, in, in this project, and which will be in the book when it comes out, which we hadn't expected to do at the beginning, we looked at the access to an Asian labor force. And, uh, you know, with all the stuff going on between the United States and China and United States, you know, I mean, Asia more generally, uh, we owe great debt to Asia for educating their labor force. <laughs> and, and, and we basically uh, had immigration laws, particularly the, the Immigration Act of 1990 and the H-1B, change in H-1B visas and L-1 visas that cherry picked. Uh, the highly educated labor force. Now that that's coming back to haunt the United States in some ways, because many of those people have ended up going back, and a lot of the capabilities that uh, they say we're giving away, you know, to to the Chinese and others, uh, there are people going back who have got education here, got uh, experience here. Now, blacks so they're are, going they're going back to set up firms that compete with our firms. Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, if you take, yeah. I mean, and so. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's where the pressure comes. Uh, that, that's one way in which it's occurring. Of course, not everybody left those countries. But and one of the remarkable things is at the time when we were letting go of 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 really upgrading the education of everybody, they were going. They were hell bent on it. And even though they had brain drain, uh, uh, Korea and, and Taiwan and and, and India, uh, at least for a portion of the population, in China were doing this. Now. Uh, when we we uh, actually, it turned out uh, that the access to the data on who's employed by these companies, uh, you know, Apple, uh, Amazon, uh, Microsoft, Intel, etc., uh, became much more available uh, bet uh, bet from about 2014, and some of it's still coming out. Although it, when Trump got elected, they stopped issuing it. It's the data that they report every year to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission on race, ethnicity, gender, and it's about diff 10 different hierarchical categories. And the important category is the one called professional, because that's where you have all the software engineers and, uh, and, and the people who you know, have advanced education. And um, you can see in the numbers that uh, uh, they wouldn't be able to exist without the Asian labor force. Um, and uh, good for the Asians, you know, who had that uh, 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 education and were able to come here. But it meant that it let all these companies off the hook for paying the taxes, supporting the upgrading of, of the American labor force. And it wasn't just blacks, it was whites. But again, if it had been whites who were hit, just whites, it, there might have been a different political coalition. We can't prove this. Okay. Now, uh, there was, uh, when we looked at the data, there were two companies that were exceptions uh, in terms of not, uh, uh, okay, so roughly you might find it, uh, and I'm not giving the exact numbers, but at Apple and Intel and, and Amazon and uh, 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 Alphabet, at, at, at the professional level, you might see that Blacks are maybe one and a half, two percent of those professionals. You know, they're about twelve percent of the population, um, except for two companies, IBM and Hewlett Packard, which is now two companies. But the two companies, the companies that was Hewlett Packard, the companies are, they have about four or five, four point five or five percent, maybe higher. So it, it's appreciably higher. Now, why? Well, I started going back when we discovered this. Now. I should say that IBM, 
does not did not release release these data. But what happened was when I was writing that other book, uh, Sustainable Prosperity in the New Economy, IBM was put uh, companies had started putting on, uh, out uh, these uh, global citizenship reports or responsibility supports to show that they had diversity. And so IBM on its website would have, and I guess it would have uh the 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 data it, it was giving to the equal employment opportunity commission and i got that data and i downloaded it from 1996 to 2008 which is lucky because when ibm ibm got to the point where over only 25% of its employees around 2008 were in the united states and it didn't want people to see this you were able to figure out because that was data where were only us employees you could figure out how many in the united states they didn't want to report that they wiped it all out and they didn't subsequently issue anymore. But when we look at that, those, those data, which are recent enough to see it, we see this very high proportion at IBM, much higher, still underrepresented, but much higher than other companies. And we also see it at HP. So I went back and looked at the annual reports of IBM and HP. And HP, it showed up particularly well because HP was at the heart of Silicon Valley. As soon as the... Uh, EEOC was was put in place. They started writing about this. And, you know, you could say, well, they're paying lip service to it. They weren't because they realized that if they could get the best black employees, they could be the place where black employees wanted to go, that this was not just a service to the country, it was a service to them. They were going to get damn good people. And, and, uh, and HP in particular documented this year by year by year. In fact, they started putting the numbers into their reports. And so I could have a table that reports on this. Uh, they call it minorities, but it's mainly black. They stopped reporting it around 1989, I think, when they found there were enough Asians around that they, they also stopped worrying about uh, recruiting blacks. But the, and IBM and Hewlett-Packard uh, became, IBM in the early 90s, Hewlett-Packard about a decade later, became what I call the downsides of tribute companies. They just started laying off lots of workers. They had been epitomized the companies that gave you lifetime employment. And I, you know, Hewlett Packard, the heart of Silicon Valley, it was employment security. Uh, it was called the HP way, IBM, you know, it was famous for that. They had changed completely, but despite those changes, you still see this legacy of a much higher proportion of blacks in these higher levels. Uh, so I think it, you know, it's something to dig into further. But I think the, the role models were there, and 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 the lines of recruitment were there, and it was very difficult uh, to break through that. We so we discussed that. So hopefully people will read it. We come out with this, but we go through, you know, how, how all these barriers to upward mobility were put in place, uh, which have to do with education, social networks, and and what these companies are doing. But the real the real uh, opportunity for whites was not simply that white working, you know, employees just all of a sudden were sending their kids to college. It was this intergenerational trajectory of uh, getting a uh, middle-class income for someone who might've been an immigrant, might've been a second generation, but had no more than a high school education and was going to work on a, in a semi-skilled job, not, not necessarily a skilled job, and was had steady pay and uh, employment security uh, to afford a middle class standard of living, uh, and to with with the public universities there uh, where you could send your 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 kids and there could be this upward mobility. 
And that was, again, back to that's what we saw, the omission. <laughs> that world had to stay in place for blacks really to take full advantage of. As long as it did stay in place and it stayed in place long enough in the 60s and into the 70s, uh, that we could actually see this, this movement. And you could see the progress. And between particularly 64 and 74, was probably the most progress that blacks had ever made. Everybody agrees with it. And that's why William Julius Wilson wrote this book, kind of the, which is based on data up to 1974, came out in 1978, called The Declining Significance of Race. Uh, he then, of course, wrote a book when, in the 90s when work disappeared, the truly disadvantage. And, and then he said, you know, he, he recognized the fragility of, of this upward mobility of blacks. It basically did something that we've documented, uh, I'd say, in somewhat more detail, looking more particular industry, with the auto industry in particular. And uh, he then uh, saw the downward mobility. Uh, the other thing that uh, we saw was it's not wasn't just downward mobility. It was uh, really a debilitating downward mobility. And uh, at the last part of the, uh, the, the, the working paper we just put out is uh, ca called From Mass Incar Production to Mass Incarceration. And you, you don't necessarily see the exact, you know, you'd have to do a lot more work to see, you know, you know who is going from having a, a blue collar job to, uh, you know, being in jail. Uh, but the whole, so all the social problems which arose because of this lack of upward mobility and this lack of not everybody was moving out of the inner cities, but enough people having the prospects of moving out of the inner cities and moving up into the mainstream, which was what, what Wilson was talking about in that 1978 book, that disappeared. And of course, that led to also the, uh, the crackdown. I mean, we know that you know, the war on drugs was, you know, the drugs were there, but the war on drugs was kind of manufactured to crack down on the victims. And of course, this is a big difference with the opioid crisis. The police have not cracking down on the victims. They're trying to actually have, have the drugs available to, 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 to save them. There's been plenty of documentation about that. So, but that really undermined, you know, you weren't going to get rid of all the racism in U.S. society. You weren't going to get rid of all the inequality, but this pathway toward the middle class and for intergenerational upward mobility was, had been put in place. And it was almost like they, the society said, no, that was not, that was not meant for you. <laughs> Uh, and said, sorry. Now, it didn't happen quite that way uh, because uh, something that I had focused on in earlier work that I, that I did, which was very important in this, it, uh, uh, which was the coming of Japanese competition. You saw the, the Japanese competition uh, arising in the 70s. People were saying, oh, it's because they work harder, the low wages. Uh, and I was watching this and saw that the wages were going up. The yen was strengthening. The hours were shortening. And it was mainly first from business schools and from some companies, including the auto companies, went to Japan. And they saw, no, they have a different system there. And they put skills on the shop floor. Uh, and they're Just part like, of an uh, integrated system. Just like W. Edward Deming? Yeah, De Deming, was, kind of was, Deming kind of was, came out of yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. you know, of course... And all the, all the, the, you know, and by the 80s, they were not just, uh, you know, it wasn't simply their manufacturing, uh, uh, mass manufacturing, it was the management methods that were being exported. And uh, this created a challenge for 
American companies. And uh, they uh, actually General Motors took the lead, you know, with Numi, you know, in, in Oakland, which is now a Tesla factory uh, in, in doing collaboration with the Japanese later with uh, Saturn, which was in Tennessee, done with the unions and with but they didn't even put the GM name on it uh, uh, of trying to uh, respond to the Japanese that way, but they never quite did it. And uh, they could have done it. There are a lot of reasons why they, why they, uh, why they didn't do it. Uh, but uh, overwhelmingly the victims of, of these companies not responding to the Japanese was uh, that black Scott hit. Much hard, in the 80s and into the 90s, much harder than whites. They got hit first because they were last hired, first fired. Uh, and, and losing those jobs, they were much more vulnerable of where, in terms of family networks or whatever. Uh, the Unfortunately, and we, we document this in the book, uh, stuff that I'd looked at before, but the Japanese, when they, after particularly after the export restraints in 1985, uh, when they they started investing uh, building plants in, uh, in the U.S. in 1983, they were almost all greenfield plants, and they were done in places where there weren't many blacks. And the the, the Japanese did not hire blacks. Uh, they uh, whether it was racism, whether it was whatever, whether they located, uh, and so the blacks did not get those jobs uh, from the Japanese. Um, and uh, you know, so you have the whole erosion of that of the jobs in that sector, and with it the uh, up, upward mobility. We also look at what happens in the government sector, uh, because one of the results of uh, really the the rise of the war on poverty and and uh, and equal employment opportunity and was uh, the creation of uh, a lot of good government jobs. And blacks were very well represented in, in the government jobs, let's say in the postal services, how that was eroded. And that was also, I think, a result of this notion that, uh, you know, the United States, they're going to globalize, they're going to get their workers from other places. Uh, this, the, the old manufacturing locales were not no longer their concern. And, and, and so, uh, Cut taxes and don't provide uh, these these services to to, to the, the places where they were needed most. Um, uh, in terms of the, the you know the mass incarceration uh, uh, for mass production of mass incarceration, uh, I think there is a link. We try to draw the link, but I think there's a lot more work to be done there about uh, um, how these were you know two sides of the same coin, but. Uh, I always remember that uh, the, uh, you know, Roger and Me, the, the documentary that made uh, Michael Moore famous and the scene in there in Flint, which, of course, became the, you know, where he was from and, and was, the center, you know, was central to this whole decline of, for both blacks and whites. Uh, I don't know if you remember the scene where uh, they turn, uh, 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 they open up a new jail. And 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 all the uh, the elites are coming there from the city, and they're you know with, with jail <laughs> with cocktails and, and jail stripes on them, you know, celebrating the opening of the new jail. And Moore goes into the fact that the they didn't focus so much on race, but that they 
both the inmates and uh, the people who were guarding them were 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 former uh, blue collar workers or people who would have had jobs in 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 the plant. So so he made that connection as he's made many other connections uh, which are related to to this. Thank you, Bill. This concludes part one of a two part podcast on the rise and fall of the black blue collar working class with Bill Azonic. Stay tuned for part two. And check out more from the Institute for New Economic Thinking at ineteconomics.org. And I'll tell it and speak it and think it and breathe it. And reflect from the mountains so all souls can see it. And I'll stand on the ocean until I start sinking. But I'll know my song well before I start singing